Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Dr. Kim Moulton, who's the MD of KLM Consulting Services. Um, who specialise in mine dewatering design, water control and aggregate tailings, pore pressure monitoring, plus many other areas around water management. Um, Kim's an avid listener to the podcast and we met recently at the mining in Dubba in Cape Town and I was quite intrigued about what she had to say about the, the water situation in the mining industry. So I had to get onto the podcast to highlight and give some content around this important subject which is obviously prominent in the mining industry, but obviously also other industries and, and in life. So uh, so no further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kim Morton. How are you doing, Kim? I'm always good and great to be with you, Rob. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, taking the time to obviously uh, come onto the podcast. And as I said, we when we met recently at the Indaba, I was pretty intrigued by what you were talking about, um, about water management. So... Um, for the audience who are listening, um, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? So when you um, studied and how your sort of career and how your your journey um, to where you are today. So if you can uh, obviously tell the audience a little bit about your uh, um, about your career from when you started way back. OK, well, I think you can hear I'm British, but I was brought up in Swaziland and then I was lucky enough to study at King's College in London, where I did my BSc honours. And then I started working in Namibia um, as a fieldie in the field of hydrogeology, dipping boreholes and supervising drilling rigs. And then I realised that I needed a master's degree to advance where I was going in mining hydrology. So again, I was very lucky and I did a master's at University College in London. And from then on, I worked again back in Namibia. I worked in Botswana, where I developed a major aquifer for um, De Beers as it was then and Debswana as it is now. And that deep aquifer has been supplying the Arapa, Letelkani and Damsha mines for nearly 40 years now at about 12 million cubic meters a year. But also while I was working on that mines, we, those mines, we had to do a dewatering design so I did the initial dewatering design as part of a team on Letelkani mine. And that was uh, very exciting. And I was very, very lucky because De Beers liked the work I did. And I managed to work for them for 18 years on all of their mines worldwide. And the most exciting part about working for De Beers is the Block Cave mine at Finch in the Northern Cape, where we had a wonderful research budget and over 10 years we developed, I think, the best way to not only research, but also install and operate a block cave dewatering design down to 1.2 kilometers. So I wrote that up as a PhD for Imperial College. And to my knowledge, it's the only PhD on Kimblight mine 
mining hydrology, and that's available through Imperial. Okay. And then, of course, sorry, and then, then of course, um, you know, while doing that, I've also worked all, all around the world in different types of underground mines and block, block caves and open pit mines and become a specialist in transition of dewatering from open pit to underground. And in the course of that work, I found that it was necessary to learn how to speak to board members in financial terms. So I went back to Imperial and I did an MBA. And that has been very, very useful in teaching me how to talk water strategy and optimizing mine water control, not just to benefit the uh, shareholders, but also to benefit the entire mine through the value chain. So that, that in a nutshell, is what I've been doing for the last 40 years. Yeah. And obviously, you're now obviously working for yourself and providing services um, for, obviously, uh, KM Consulting Services. Um, how did you make that transition then working from for a company like De Beers, which is probably pretty structured, I would imagine, to working for yourself? Well, I've always worked for consultants. I started off with Dames and Moore, which is now URS. Yep. And then I worked for SRK. And then sadly at SRK, I hit a bit of a glass ceiling in 89. They just didn't have any female partners. So then I had to form my own consulting company. And I was very, very lucky that De Beers stayed with us. And that's where the 18 years worth of work came in there. So Quite I've nice. always actually worked for consulting firms, but the last 31 years has been my own consulting firm. Yeah, I understand. Um, so obviously, you've got uh, a long history and obviously this specialisation um, of uh, mine water investigations. What have you sort of learned about mine dewatering design? Well, it's actually quite simple. You need to know three things. Where's the water coming from? What's it travelling along? And what's it stored in? That's what you need to know about the water. So that's cutting through all the jargon. And it sounds fairly straightforward, but of course you need a decent monitoring network to be able to establish where the water's coming from. And to understand where the water's coming from, you need to know head distribution. And what's been great in recent years has been miniaturization of monitoring points, of course, telemetry and automation. So, for example, a project I was doing for BHP in the Pilbara, we were able to monitor simultaneously about a thousand data points to get that information, which we then translated into knowledge and could then add value to the mining project by knowing in real time what's going on with their water. Okay. What do you see sort of, I suppose generally speaking, what do you see companies generally um, doing wrong with their water management? That's a great question because I often say what I've learned in the last 40 years is, is how not to do things. Yeah. And, you know, consultants get a bad rap but I think the main advantage of being a consultant is you get to see so many different projects, whereas a mining engineer might only work on four or five mines their entire career. As a consultant, I've covered over 300, and I've really seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. So I think the way forward is to show clients what has been done before badly. And it was fascinating working in Russia because they've got a very slapstick sense of humor. And what went down really well working in Russia was showing pictures of where there'd been huge mistakes. And I'd have the board and the engineers rolling on the floor, you know, slapping their thighs, saying, oh, my goodness, how could they do that so badly? 
Yeah. And and by using case studies, you know, no names, no pack drill, yeah. you can explain to people what they shouldn't do and get their confidence in trying to do things better. Got you. Yeah, understand. Um, so what are the sort of key ingredients to uh, successfully have a mine water management plan and sort of risk uh, reduction? Well, once you know where the water's coming from, what it's traveling along and what it's stored in, you then move on to cutting off recharge, exploiting permeability and starting early. You know, groundwater moves very slowly and it's really important to give time to collect water and intercept water. So those are the three mantras for mine dewatering control. It's cut off recharge, exploit permeability and start early. Okay. And so what are the, why are the best solutions both top down and bottom up? Well, what's very interesting is often I get called, you know, a phone call late at night saying my pit's wet or we've got a flood or a mud rush. Please, yeah. can you come and look? And I get to the site and, and I'm a great believer. Don't talk about anything you haven't seen or where you haven't got your boots dirty. Yeah. And often you get to an underground mine and you start on surface and there is poor stormwater controls. There's water pouring into the pit or there's water soaking into the zone of relaxation around the pit shoulder. Or when you get underground, there's water pouring out of pipelines and puddled. You know, often it's the very basics that go wrong quite early. Yeah. And therefore, I think it's really important to start top down. And that is what's happening at surface. Because most of the water usually comes in from rainfall somehow or other, or from storage dams, or from waste rock dams, or on the older mines, leaking pipelines, for example, or poorly maintained stormwater. And only when I've looked at the surface do I start going underground and seeing what's the reticulation like there, what is their strategy underground. And of course, with block caving, just because you're creating a cave and you're allowing all the ore to come into the draw point, it means that you're also getting water flow to that lowest point. So block caving by its definition is going to suck the water to the lowest point, which is exactly where you're collecting the ore. So it's really important to understand where that water is coming from. Yeah. And for example, on uh, the block caves I've worked on, we'll put in a network of point piezometers around the ore body to measure the head of water and be able to plot the equipotentials that show the direction of groundwater flow to the working area. And another example on a kimberlite mine, uh, we exploit faults, in other words, zones of low permeability, sorry, zones of high permeability, and we would install pumping boreholes to create a suction, to create a drawdown, a sink below the workings and divert water away from the working area. So you, you dry out section by section, for example. Yeah. I mean, from... from when you answered the, the question, I suppose it does make sense. A lot, obviously, a lot of water probably would come from rain and from the surface, so that's where you probably would first look if you're working, obviously, in an open pit or under the ground mine. So, yeah, I suppose it does make make sense, but I suppose when you're in that situation, it's not necessarily the first thing you would think. Well, you'd be surprised. I don't know why they call it common sense because there's so little <laughs> yeah. of it about. I understand. But, but off. off Seriously, often the water's coming from somewhere really simple. Yeah. But traditionally, mining engineers have chucked the pump where they see the water coming out the face. Got and it. that's usually the most expensive place to pump from because now you've got a bigger head to pump against 
And secondly, the water is now polluted because it's come into contact with your body. So it really makes good sense to intercept the water, as I said, cut off recharge well away from the workings and create a sink that pulls the water away from where you don't want it. Yeah. Um, how do ESG issues and mine water uh, control overlap? That, that's a really good question. For a long time, the environmentalists have been the tail wagging the dog. And we've had a lot of monitoring going on that is not relevant to the mining problem and a lot of box ticking. In other words, the board are told, yes, we've got a monitoring network. We know where the water's coming from. And yes, we've got a numerical model. And yes, we've got a hydrogeology model and we know what's happening. But the reality is the hydrogeology model is wrong because the conceptual model is wrong and because the monitoring is being done in the wrong places. And because of the recession, I think people are now being more critical about what they spend their monitoring money on and what they spend the numerical model on. And they want more bang for their buck. They actually want it to be more useful to production than just a box ticking exercise to get them a permit for water use. Yeah. So how is this easily fixed then? Um, It's not really easily fixed. It's, It's a hard sell. You know, groundwater is not easily visible. Yeah. And there's a lot of misconceptions how water flows into a mine. But what, what's happening these days is there's a lot more visualization techniques involved. We've been working with a company called SitePower that can do 3D visualizations, mixed reality, you know, using um, hollow lenses. So you can actually look at a mine in, in, as a hologram in the boardroom. Yeah. And you can see, you can draw for the board, for example, where the water's coming from, what it's traveling along, and what it's stored in. And this gives them more understanding of the water regime around a mine, particularly an underground mine. And then the spend can be more accurately allocated. But as I said, the recession has led to more critical analysis of what money is being spent on what. Now, another exciting development is zero discharge okay. mine design. So if, if you pollute, it usually means you're buying in or bringing in too much water. So if you're releasing water downstream, that, that's a waste of money because, first of all, you'll have had to either buy that water or store it if it's come in from rainfall. In most countries, mines are taxed on the water they bring onto the mine. And if you release water downstream, you're taxed on that water as well. And the water released downstream, if it's been in contact with your body, is polluted water. So what I tried to do is use a carrot with the board and say, look, if we use less water, it's actually going to benefit your bottom line because you won't be releasing water downstream. You won't be polluting, which will save you money. But you'll also have a more efficient resource management on the mine itself. Got you. Understand it. It does make sense if you obviously from obviously you're an expert in the in uh, this subject. But yeah, from from what you're saying, it does make pretty 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 much sense. Um, what would you say the challenges? the industry sort of face around water management? Gosh. Or is there too many? No, it's, it depends. You know, what I've learned in mining is innovation's a bit like a Mexican wave. You know, the innovation, say, will start in South Africa or South America, then it'll move to North America, then across to Europe, then down Africa and Asia, and then Australia. And then it starts all over again, a new wave of, of innovation. So, and, and they're different they're different levels. So you'll have innovation in mine dewatering design, but the pollution innovation will be lagging behind. 
And I think my biggest challenge helping on new mine, mining projects is getting data sharing. Okay, yeah. In other words, getting the geologists to understand that the structural model needs to feed into the hydrogeological model, which also then feeds into the geotechnical model, which then feeds into the rock mass model, which then feeds into the mine planning model. And if you can get data sharing, and that can be done obviously on a major server within the mine, or, or just better communication within those different departments, then the water management comes much more seamless. And of course, we've got advantages now in that, uh, obviously because of telemetry, big data techniques, we can have many water points all being uh, reported to a central database and interrogated. So you have data becomes information, becomes knowledge. But it's really important, I find, to get the geotech department to share with the geologists who share with the hydrogeologists. And unfortunately, a lot of mining companies still have those particular disciplines significantly siloed. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because it creates huge wastage. Yeah. Do you see a lot of efficiencies around that then, that communication? And I suppose, have you got any suggestions as how they could possibly look at improving that, that communication? Well, it's very different all around the world. Yeah. The, the bigger mining companies think they're on top of it. But that's often because they've got a central database that everyone ignores. And you'll find the geotechs are doing their own thing on another little model. And the hydros are doing another model because they don't want to manage the major database. So I think what's important to make sure they're interlinked is outside review. You know, someone who hasn't, hasn't got to keep the mine manager happy for job promotion can actually come in and say, that information is not being shared there. It's not being shared there. If we share it, we've got an integrated water management system. Okay. Yeah, no, I understand. And hopefully people that are listening and in those positions, hopefully take some of that on board and obviously try and maybe implement a few systems or processes to obviously improve improve that communication between the, the disciplines, geology, mine engineering, planning, etc. I think it happens in all areas of mine water management. I've just been at the South African Institute of Mining and Metallurgy tailings conference for the last two days, where there are over 20 papers presented on improving tailings management <clears throat> and linking into the Church of England initiative on improved tailings management, the ICMM and the, the new tailings regulations that are being published soon. And that was very exciting because it's it's getting people to think about what exactly do you need to measure and how can we stop these tailing stems failing? Yeah. And of course, water is a big component of tailing stem failure. It's usually the weight of water, that increase in pressure, either in the slope or in the pond or even beneath the tailing stem that creates instability. Yeah. And so water was significantly highlighted at that conference. Yeah. Was there anything else from from that conference that you like to like to mention that or highlight, um, which you th which you think is important, and I suppose people listening maybe need to be uh, made aware of. Okay. So on the tailing stem management side, what was exciting is there was an understanding that you cannot just delegate a safety factor, a number, to a geotech person and say, look, we've got a safety factor of 1.5. That means the tailing stem safe. Tailing stem management is much more complex than that. And what came out of the conference very clearly was it's not good practice just to measure the movement 
of a tailing stem. You actually have to measure the cause of the movement. If you just measure with prisms, with LIDAR, with satellite monitoring, the movement of the dam, it's too late. You can't stop that dam moving. What you need to do is, is understand the cause. And the major cause of dam failure is buildup of too much water, either in the pond or as pressures in the slopes or as pressure coming underneath, you know, the hydraulic factor that yeah. destabilizes the tailing stem from underneath. And what the uh, directors of companies, mining companies that manage tailing stems and own tailing stems are saying is that the whole company has to put their arms around the solution. And that safety factor is only one aspect of managing the safety of a tailing stem. Yeah, no, I understand. And obviously with, I suppose, some of the more recent tailing dam failures, um, has it always been the same the same issue? And if these sort of issues happened quite a long time ago, have people learned the lessons from years previously or are they still not necessarily taking action? It looks like there's a lot more action in stabilising tailings dams around the world. South Africa's always been very good at it, but um, the Brumadino disaster has made everyone sit up and say, well, what can I do on my patch? Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot more activity in the monitoring area for tailing stands, not just because of the Church of England's initiative, but also because insurers are now withdrawing, um, insuring certain tailing stands. If there's a perception of a high risk, they will not cover it. And, and this is obviously affecting the bottom line of the risk register. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what's the, the most single, single most important item in accurate mine water risk reduction? I think it's understanding the water regime, going back to where is the water coming from, what's it traveling along and what's it stored in. So many mines, they just deal with the water at the bottom of the pit or at the bottom of the underground mine without understanding where that water's coming from. And it can save a lot of money and it really helps with the understanding to do a proper survey and say, well, that's the main source of water and this is how we can intercept it. So it isn't a problem. So, again, it's first of all a proper conceptual model. And then secondly, it's monitoring to understand how the groundwater regime changes over life of mine. And, and that's really, really important. I'm seeing, sadly, too many numerical models that yeah. are done from data to numerical model. And both the consultants, the engineers, the hydrogeologists and the modelers are missing out the absolute essential part, which is a conceptual model. And, and even best is a conceptual model that's drawn on a piece of paper where someone actually says, right, this is where the water's coming from. These are the values of the permeability. These are the hydraulic heads and even the chemistry that tells you the history of that water. Because all water picks up the minerals it flows over. Yeah. So by understanding the chemistry of the water, you can say where its provenance was and what its pathway was. And even if you do isotope measurement, what the age of that water was. So that, that's what I'm recommending is an understanding of the regime that's drawn in three dimensions, plan and section, with figures added to it as a conceptual model long before anyone even tries to cr create a numerical model. Okay. Um, I know you've obviously written, recently written a paper um, on accurate tailings monitoring. What's the most 
uh, I suppose what is the the main recommendation that you uh, that you could tell the audience from that paper that you wrote? Well, the paper emphasised pore pressure monitoring. In other words, measuring the weight of water in the slopes, measuring it upstream, downstream, and underneath. Because most tailings dams are sitting on some type of aquifer, whether it's a very shallow um, alluvial riverbed aquifer or a deeper aquifer. But there's always some type of hydraulic head impacting on the tailings dam from underneath and upstream and from the sides of the dam and the tattoo of the dam. So that's your first level of monitoring. And that can be done with accurate pore pressure monitoring. And then the tailings dam itself, you can put and put in that is properly distributed, which again you can distribute using sensitivity analysis of typical numerical modeling techniques. And you can draw up equipotentials to say where that water's flowing from. And then if those monitoring points are linked to t- telemetry and assigned well-defined trigger points, particularly trend, m- most poor pressure monitoring points show instability not as a sudden point, but as a gradual trend, increasing pressure. And if that can be linked to, uh, you know, the tarp system, whereby if pressures build up, then drains can be installed or boreholes can be started. And we can lower the phreatic head, lower the pressure, and therefore stabilize the dam. I think that's the right way to go. And that's what I emphasized in the paper. However, what really came out well from the tailings conference was uh, Ross Cooper, one of the a, a tailing stamps got a character. They're all individuals, and and I said, yeah, sure. One's a, a grumpy old lady, another one's a, a young lady, yeah. and they all behave differently. So it's really important to understand every tailing stamp is unique, and it needs a bespoke monitoring system. So a modern tailing stamp with a liner can have a more modern type of monitoring system. The older tailing stamps, our legacy dams, were typically just started on in, in a river valley. And as you know, mining often goes in five-year leaps. You start a mine thinking, well, we've got to get this profitable and our money back in five years. So it's designed for a five-year life. Yeah. And a lot of those mines are now 40 or 50 years old. And the same applies to tailing stamps. Tailing stamps that were designed to last five years have built, been built on and built on and expanded. And they're now lo- no longer fit for purpose and can be very dangerous. And they require an even more critical type of monitoring network where you probably have belt and braces as well as a pore pressure monitoring network. You'd also have your prisms. You'd have your LIDAR surveys. You'd have your satellite. You'd have your cell phone alert systems going on. You know, a a cranky old lady needs a lot more attention than than a new young lady. Yeah. And I suppose, so as as obviously a mine evolves, the tailings dam evolves, but the, the way that the, the tailings dam has, ma- has been managed probably hasn't evolved as quickly as it should have done. And obviously, like you're yes, saying, that- it's, uh, as you've been saying, it's it needs monitoring it, it probably in a different way now if they're getting bigger and bigger. Yes, no, you're quite right. There's, there's several aspects to the risk management of a dam, not only the construction of the dam and its current pressure distribution, but also how it's going to be um, built on in the future and the operating system and what's coming out of the church of england review is that you can't just leave the operating of the dam to the daily operation it has to have outside review 
you have to have a dedicated engineer who signs off the safety of it. And then you've also got to have um, understanding at board level that there is responsibility in managing that dam. But the definitely the, the new tailing stem regulations are coming out. They've got 12 principles where everything's been very detailed as to how well you can manage an old dam, a new dam, a building dam, any type of tailing stem. It's a very good document. Okay. Um, got a last few questions. Um, what would you say the um, industry needs to do to improve their water management plans? I don't think there's one sort of one strategy fits all. Yeah. Um, as you know, in the mining industry, you've got the, the seniors that have got a lot of experience monitoring place. You've got the juniors and you've got um, legacy mines where water management is pretty much neglected. Yeah. In my experience, I would say not all mines monitor adequately. Yeah. And even though they do monitor, it's not being interpreted well enough. Yeah. And it's not being transferred into the knowledge that not only the engineers need, but board members and um, outside consultants need. Uh, there's a project I've just worked on now where they thought they had a really wonderful water balance. But when you looked at the numbers, it didn't even balance. The rainwater in did not match the rainwater being pumped out. Got you. And, yeah. and although they thought, wow, we've got a water balance, no one actually checked that. So I think quality assurance is probably the most essential part of water monitoring, water management of all mines at the moment. It's not good enough to tick a box saying we've got a numerical model, we've got a monitoring network. It actually has to work for production. It's got to make the operating guide's life easier. It's got to improve productivity. It can't just be there as a nice to have. It must work for its for its um, investment. Yeah, and I suppose it constantly changes as well. So if you, at the beginning of the year, I suppose monitor it, at the end of the year, it could be diff completely different to the beginning of the year. So it would need constant monitoring and then altering when necessary. Well, yes, mine plans change all the time. Yeah. And of course, most mines are in a seasonal area. So your, your dry season situation is very different to your wet season situation. Yeah. And certainly in Central Africa, you have four different seasons, you know, two rainy seasons, two dry seasons. And, and it's really important to understand the inputs and outputs. But it, it's not difficult. It just takes time. But yeah. what I'm finding frustrating working for mining companies is they're very happy spending millions on drilling yeah. and logging coal. But they won't spend the money on the time to think about what data is being collected. Yeah. So it's that thinking time that's really important. And I think that's possibly because accountants tend to rule, you know, the time and motion on a mine. And they're saying they can easily quantify, you know, we've drilled 10 kilometers of core this, this month, tick. Yeah. But it's really important to actually have the time to think about what that core information or those water pressures or those water levels it's thinking time, and that seems to be missing in a lot of mine organisations. Yeah. Would you say they're more reactive to a water management issue as opposed to being more – or should be being more proactive? Yes, you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah. They wait until there's a problem. And that, exactly, that's yeah. sad. That's really sad. I do quite a lot of due diligence on, on, on problems. Sorry, yeah. I've messed that up. I do expert witness on disasters and it's so easy after the fact to say, well, 
you could see this coming. Why were you not measuring that? Why yeah. was no one looking at the water coming into that area? Why was the water balance wrong? And, and it would be lovely, instead of spending lots of money on insurers, actually spending the money on have we got a sensible understanding of our water regime? Yeah. Do we have a correct water balance? Is the water coming in being diverted around the mine? Yeah. You know, as I said, it's common sense, but why is there so little of it about? Yeah. So I suppose from what you, you have been saying and obviously coming a lot of lot of content around the water management issue, um, I suppose it is constant monitoring. And so you don't have these issues that suddenly arise. Um, obviously, there's wet seasons, dry seasons. You expect more activity during a wet season than a dry season. But it's it needs to be. I suppose it needs to be constant monitoring. And I suppose from what you're saying, companies are not continuously monitoring and adapting and changing to the, the water issues that that they then face at one particular time. Well, it's constant monitoring, but in the mm. right place, okay. using the right equipment. I go on numerous sites where they've punched in water level monitoring boreholes all over the place, but they're too shallow or they're too deep. Or it's a classic where um, environmental boreholes are often put down with no thought about what aquifer they're going into. You know, some environmentalists have just said, well, we need north, south, east, west, but they haven't looked at the aquifers below them to understand the directions of flow. So the best monitoring systems are actually well thought out using, first of all, the geological ore body model, then the country rock model, which has got a structural model on top of it, and understanding, and the assumptions are important. Where is that water coming from? And then when you've got a first conceptual model about where the water's coming from, then you would pop in your monitoring boreholes to pick up head distribution and preferably sealed point piezometers, say three to the north, three to the south, three to the west, three to the east, to give you a three-dimensional view of the water flow. Because water doesn't just flow horizontally. It can yeah. flow in a U-shape from surface all the way down, and then it can pop up underground, you know, coming up from the foot wall. And unless you've got a well-distributed three-dimensional monitoring network, not just a bunch of shallow holes at surface, when you've got that, you can plot in a flow net, in a three-dimensional diagram, the entire regime of water flow into that mine. And it's not expensive. And it can save mines millions because they can understand where that water is coming from. And if they need to cut it off, they can cut it off upstream. Okay. So obviously as a consultant, um, what kind of services does KM Consulting, uh, your company, offer mining companies, uh, I suppose in the field of water management and tailings dam management? Well, our main expertise is understanding the water regime that impacts on the mine and making sure that that understanding benefits the profitability of the mine. So we come in at a water strategy level and then, as mentioned, often the monitoring network's inadequate. So we'll recommend a proper monitoring network, which we can then help develop the conceptual model and then the numerical model. And for, say, a dewatering design, we then do different simulations with using the numerical model for different types of dewatering design and obviously different costs because some mines can only afford one particular type of dewatering design where a much richer mine can afford a more effective dewatering design. So it's a cost-benefit understanding that we also offer. And okay. then 
that that usually needs to be checked every year as the mine plan changes, as the mine gets deeper. And then we do something similar for tailing stamps. Again, it's understanding the hydraulic regime around a tailing stamp, um, checking that the monitoring in place is in the right place and making sure that the risk assessment is right for that particular mine. Okay. So quite a wide range of services that you can provide and obviously assist companies around their water management and tailings dam management. So um, anyone listening, obviously, um, if you want some expert advice, then obviously you can contact uh, Kim with uh, any issues or challenges that you may have. Um, I've got one last question that I'm starting to ask most of the guests that appear on the uh, on the podcast. Um, if there was one person uh, you would like to that you would like on the podcast and would like to listen to, um, and we must interview that person, who who would you recommend that I uh, interview? I think the person I'd most like to listen to myself is um, Dr. DeFratis, Dr. Mike DeFratis. He ran the Geotechnical Engineering MSc at Imperial for okay. about 40 years. Okay. And he has got students all around the world. And his knowledge about going back to first principles and, and what's important about understanding stress and risk is absolutely critical. And as he's coming up for his 80s, I think it would be absolutely invaluable, invaluable to get a record of him talking about what he knows. And it's really important to go back to someone like Mike DeFratis, who's done everything on a slide rule, to say, how do we actually untangle a problem? And how do we apply our minds and get to some original thought, not just the algorithms that a computer will use? Okay. Perhaps, yeah, I'll, perhaps I'll get in contact with him. Um, and, yeah, maybe uh, try and get him on the show, certainly. Um, he's, in, he's in Barnes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not, not, not too far away, then. No. <laughs> um, really appreciate your time, uh, Kim, for taking the time out to uh, obviously tell, tell the audience about, obviously, water management, which is obviously an important issue, um, not just with, obviously, recent disasters that have happened but for ongoing um ongoing i suppose environmental um issues and um obviously with water um it is pretty precious and um hopefully you'll be able to help people maybe save save uh save on water and also um help with issues or challenges that they may be facing with their water management so really appreciate your time um coming on this podcast um, if this, if the audience wants to sort of get in contact with you, how can they go about doing that? Oh, I travel a lot, so email's probably the best, and that's kmorton, M-O-R-T-O-N, at K-L-M-C-S, that's C for Charlie, S for sugar, dot C-O dot Z-A, kmorton at K-L-M-C-S dot C-O dot Z-A. Okay, and are you on any social media platforms? No. Okay. Should I be? No, um, <laughs> it's it's entirely up to you. It's entirely. Up, it, it, I suppose sometimes it depends how comfortable you are. Um, but listen, if the audience wants to contact you, they can obviously contact you via via email, and then maybe you can have a have a chat that way. So that that's fine. It's entirely up to you. Um, alternatively, you can um, you can contact myself, and I can pass any messages on to uh, Kim, and my email address is Rob 
at mining-international.org. Um, like I said, thank you again, Kim, for coming on the show. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, which I hope you have, I certainly have learned a lot. Um, if you want, if you could appreciate, if you could share this um, podcast or especially this episode to anyone that you feel may benefit from this, appreciate if you can uh, pass that, pass the, pass the podcast on to people, tell them about it. Um, because I think it would really help a lot of people, um, I suppose, broaden their mining experience. So, um, yeah, thank you again for listening. Um, and until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.